Good evening, everyone. I'm Judy Cooper, the coordinator of public programs here, and we're happy to see all of you. Arthur Magida's new book, The Nazi Seance, takes us to pre-World War II Germany for the story of the clairvoyant Jew who advised Hitler and the Nazis. In the early 1930s, the, uh, the most famous mentalist in Berlin was Erich van Hannesen, a Jewish mind reader. Hannesen became so popular in Berlin that he rubbed elbows with high-ranking Nazis and even advised Hitler. Uh, Arthur Magid is going to take us through that story of Erich van Hannesen this evening and, and the Nazi seance. Arthur is writer-in-residence at the University of Baltimore. And he's also a journalism professor at Georgetown University. He's received numerous awards uh, in journalism and the humanities, and has written um, some other books, including The Rabbi and the Hitman and Prophet of Rage, A Life of Louis Farrakhan and His Nation. So please join me in welcoming Arthur Magida, welcoming him back to the press. Thank you. Thank you. <laughs> Thank you. Um, I don't want to disappoint anyone tonight. Um, there will not be a Nazi seance here this evening. Uh, sorry, people are disappointed already and, and, and disillusioned. Uh, there's the door if you want to leave now before things really get moving. It's your opportunity. The reason I say um, no Nazi seance is that, oh, I don't know, five, six weeks ago, I gave my first talk related to this book. It was at a wonderful bookstore in Annapolis. I got there about 7 o'clock. I learned they had received several calls throughout the day. People were worried that there would be a Nazi seance in the Annapolis bookshop. Uh, Anti-Defamation League had been alerted, and I was afraid there were going to be pickets outside, no Nazi seance in our neighborhood. But everything was calm, and, and we did have a very pleasant evening, and I, perhaps tonight will be pleasant as well. I think it will be, because I have my coffee. I'm very content. I want you to know that every, every book starts somewhere. And I'm not talking about opening sentences like, you know, it was the best of times, it was the worst of times. If you need to ask what that's from, there's the door also. I, uh, another great opening sentence, call me Ishmael. You know what that one's from. But I'm talking about a different starting point, that aha moment when you suddenly, unexpectedly, surprisingly know you have the idea for your next book. That's the beginning that I'm talking about. When your whole nervous system comes alive, you perk up and you say, wow, this is what I'm going to be doing for the next two, three, four years of my life. This is going to be worthwhile. This is going to be a blast. It'll be fascinating. Maybe it's going to make the world a better place. Maybe it'll help us understand it better. Maybe it'll help us understand ourselves better, our past, our future, or it's just going to be plain fun to do. Well, the beginning of this book, The Nazi Seance, came about 3 o'clock in the morning. Uh, everybody remembered Daedalus Bookshop, the now 
closed, defunct, lamented Daedalus Bookshop, Belvedere Square, near the Senator Theater. I was there about three years ago browsing around. I found a book called The Rise of the Indian Rope Trick by a Scottish scholar and magician, Peter Lamont. And I've always been interested in India, in magic, in tricks, in rope. So I picked it up, and I was reading it very, very late at night. A fascinating book, full of all kinds of theories about how the Indian rope trick was done. And those of you who may not know the Indian rope trick, basically, a guy throws a rope up into the air. It stiffens. A boy climbs to the top. He's followed by a man. They both disappear in a cloud. Suddenly, there are screams from the top, and the boy's limbs, one by one by one, all bloodied, fall down to the ground. It's really horrible. I'm really happy I never saw the Indian rope trick. <clears throat> then the man climbs down. He opens up a basket that's on the sand. Suddenly, the boy pops out, alive, intact. All of his limbs are right where they should be. Good for him. So that's the Indian rope trick. I'm reading the book late at night, and suddenly... There are two meager paragraphs with the ideas about how the Indian rope trick was done. They almost make sense. What didn't make sense was that the guy who came up with these ideas, this fellow named Eric Jan Hannesen, Peter Lamont, the author of the Indian rope trick, says this guy, Hannesen, was Hitler's Jewish clairvoyant. Three o'clock in the morning, I did not need a cup of caffeine to keep me going through the rest of that night. I knew I had just found the next book. And I found the name Hanneson. I found the identification. It was Jewish <coughs> clairvoyant. Um, it made absolutely no sense to me. I figured that if Peter Lamont's really brief references to Hanneson were true, if he really was a Jewish psychic who had advised Hitler and other Nazis, then Hanneson, who was really the most famous psychic in Berlin in the early 30s, was a cad and a traitor. If true, then Hanneson assumed he could manipulate some of the more incendiary personalities of his time, just as he had manipulated many many, many of his fans. This is a man who had filled some of the largest theaters throughout Europe, Paris, Berlin, Vienna, Copenhagen. And if true, then Hanneson was so secure, so delusionally secure, that he thought he could safely tell a high-level Nazi in early 1933, Adolf looks more like an unemployed hairdresser than a Caesar. You don't say that in Berlin in January, February 1933. Anyone with more sense would have kept his trap shut. Was not smart to talk about Hitler this way. But for Hanneson, life was an illusion, a play, a charade. As I write in the book, Hanneson led a life of magical thinking. Yet he was not alone. Millions of people in Europe and America were also oblivious to the conflagration that lay ahead. Unlike Honison, 
They did not lay claim to having superpowers or operating out of time and space. Ordinary people with ordinary vision, they were not ready to forgo their hope in the essential goodness of human beings. In time, they would. They would have no choice. Hanneson was different. He straddled the juncture between tribal loyalties and personal adventurism, between the Nazis' fascination with the occult and the rationalism of much Jewish thought, between the demi-monde in Berlin and the looming Nazi nightmare. In certain ways, Hanneson was typical of the European Jews who operated along the margins of society. They did this by necessity. There were limits to how far they could enter into mainstream society. But what could be more marginal than reading minds and performing magic, than teetering along the thin ledge between reason and logic? The Jew was already the other. Hanneson would take otherness in a new direction, emphasizing less his difference from Christians than his power to bestow visions and prophecies on a people, the Germans, who were craving a future where they would stand tall and proud and tower over the pygmies who had humiliated them, first by defeating them in World War I, then emasculating them with a harsh, brutal treaty that ended that war. The day after learning about Hanneson, so early in the morning, I began researching him. I discovered that he was born to an impoverished Jewish family in Vienna in 1889, that his real name was Hermann Steinschneider, that he ran away from home when he was in his early teens. He bounced around from circus to circus in Austria and Czechoslovakia, sometimes performing as a clown, a gymnast, a tightrope walker, a lion tamer, and this guy was really talented. And once he played Judas in a passion play, I figured of all the jobs that Hanneson had as a teenager, this was the most delicious. A Jew playing the Jew who betrayed the Jew who was the son of God. So these stories came from Hanneson's autobiography. They can't be verified. No one was paying any attention to Hanneson in those years. Nobody cared about him. We have to take Hanneson's word for them. Like the time he tried to want, run away from home with a singer who was three times his age. She was in her mid-40s when he was maybe 12, 13 years old. They didn't have any money for this great adventure. He claims in his autobiography that the two of them lowered his entire family's furniture with a rope from their third or fourth floor window so they could pawn that for money. And Hanneson himself was just about down the rope when his father came home. And basically he said, you know, Herman, get up here and go to bed. Leave me alone. I've had it with you, Sonny. So I don't believe any of this stuff. And that's why, since all these stories are just so darn silly, I bring the narrative to a stop in the Nazi seance, something I never did before. And I say, let us pause for a moment, dear reader. 
We've heard a lot of bizarre stories from Hanneson. We'll hear more soon. They all come from Hanneson. He's a rascal, a scoundrel. He's always the hero of his stories, falling flat on his face again and again, then redeeming himself, bringing the cheering crowd to its feet. Yes, I understand. Well, I don't know about that. Bring to his feet. <laughs> then demanding more miracles from this undersized, underestimated maestro. He knew the world was not coming to him for truth. Illusionists and mentalists don't dabble in truth. As Chekhov said, any idiot can face a crisis. Idiots, this is good news. It's the day-to-day -day living that wears you out. The world was not coming to Hanneson, was coming to Hanneson for hope, not truth. The hope that life is more than what it seems. By granting this gift to Hanneson, his fictions are more than fabrications. They are parables of what might be. So one of the great revelations while working on this book was understanding that some, not all, but some illusionists and mentalists have thought very carefully about their power to fool people. A good magician is guided by a sense of ethics. Folks know Penn and Teller, you know, <clears throat> you know Penn, big, tall, large, six foot, 12 inch guy, never shuts up, he's bombastic, he insults people from the stage. Teller, much shorter, silent, not a word. He spoke to me off stage, and it's really a shame he isn't the one who talks on stage. He's very, very articulate, <clears throat> very, very learned. He told me, a magician puts a frame of truth around his lies that prevents them from doing harm. Frame a truth around their lies. One of Honison's great failings is that he forgot about constructing that frame. He did not warn his audiences that what he was doing was an act. He ignored what an American magician, a guy named Carl Germain, said about his craft Conjuring is the only absolutely honest profession. The conjurer promises to deceive, and he does. So Hanneson was great at deceiving. He kept his promise. But over time, he did not confess to his audiences that he was pretending, that he was acting. He presented himself as the real thing as somebody who could really read minds, as somebody who could transcend time and space, as somebody who really knew the future. And that's why I call Hanneson one of the finest liars in Europe. He lied about his powers. He lied about his past, claiming he'd been a clairvoyant since he was a little kid. And we don't know if he lied about being sympathetic to the Nazis. We do know, though, but by the middle of 1932, he turned his weekly newspaper in Berlin. This is a paper that had almost a million circulation. It was part newspaper, part gossip sheet, part astrological almanac. He turned this into a Nazi rag. He had headlines blaring, 
The stars tell us Hitler's greatest days are coming up. Or cosmic laws determine the decision for Hitler. He had predictions claiming the world will not become Bolshevist, it will become fascist. We also know that in early 1933, a few days after Hitler became chancellor, Hannesen's paper published an open letter to the Fuhrer in which Hannesen said his only mission was to say what my second sight tells me. I foresaw your coming, mein Fuhrer, and truthfully I spoke of it. Hannesen complained that he had been ridiculed as a Nazi prophet, but he assured Hitler that his only comfort was knowing I was in good company, yours. So was Hannesen lying? It's really hard to say. We can say that this man was always an opportunist, a schemer, a dreamer, and that he didn't necessarily care who he harmed as long as he acquired more fame and more wealth, and indeed he had a lot of both of those. Was he a mind reader? Not quite. A year or two before World War I started, Hannesen learned how to do something that's called mind reading. And during the war, he often entertained troops in the Austrian army in which he was serving. Just as often, though, he would desert the army, perform in small towns in the countryside. 1916, on a train, he met an impresario who booked him into a theater in Vienna. That's when Hannesen hit the big time. The royal family was there. They adored Hannesen. He was putting on a great show for them. And after the show, they invited him to their own box. He performed some more magic for them, spoke with them for over an hour. They all had a wonderful time. Shortly afterward, Hannesen began filling large theaters throughout Europe performed up and down the East Coast in the United States in 1924, New York, Boston, Hoboken. And he went back to Europe. He prospered until 1929 when he was accused in Czechoslovakia, oh, horrors, of being a fraud. Imagine a mind reader who was a fraud. The trial dragged on and on, months and months and months. Wrong verdict would have ended Hannesen's career. He knew that. He was nervous. And some days the trial went extremely well for him. One witness said that Hannesen had accurately diagnosed a relative's illness just by looking at a postcard from this guy. I got a postcard yesterday. I couldn't diagnose anything. Um, two judges from a small town testified about testing Hannesen a few years before by randomly pulling a report about a murder from a whole stack of files. Without showing it to Hannesen, he gave them precise details about the case. Good trick. Some days the trial went very, very badly for poor Mr. Hannesen, a baker who had lost his watch, asked Hannesen how he could possibly find this. It was a family heirloom. The baker really wanted it. Hannesen told him, well, it's very simple. To find your watch, all you have to do is put an ad in the local paper's lost and found section. That's how you find things. Go to a clairvoyant, put an ad in the paper. For that advice, Hannesen charged the baker 100 kronen. I would have charged him 75. Um, 
<clears throat> what was that? Dollar twenty-two. I don't remember, but for you, seventy-four cents. Um, a woman said, oh, "Another Cronin." Um, said she paid uh, Hannesen two hundred Cronin for a reading. Hannesen said her husband had a liver disorder. The guy was actually in great health. Poor Hannesen, he blew it again. So during all this time, months of this trial, <clears throat> Hannesen kept asking the judge if he could demonstrate his powers in court. Finally. May 1930, it's about six, seven months after this trial began, the judge agreed. Yes, Mr. Honison, you can put on a show for us. The courtroom was packed. Word got out in town, Honison's going to perform tonight. He put on a pretty good show. He found a set of keys that had been hidden outside the courtroom. He identified the handwriting of a woman who had once been very wealthy, was now living in great poverty. He correctly identified the birthday of a relative of a court employee, the date of a major car accident. I can't even remember the date of my last car accident. A few hours later, the judge ruled. There is no question that Honison solved the experiments, and there's no way he could have faked the results. His metaphysical abilities are beyond doubt. This is a legal ruling. This guy's legit. Trial was such a victory that as far away as America, a headline in one of my favorite papers, I subscribe to it, get every day, New York Times announced, clairvoyant proves power in Czech court. Jan Hannesen demonstrates while experts wrangle. With his acquittal, Honison became the most famous and the wealthiest psychic in Europe. But what about Honison and the Nazis? I mean, I really haven't said too much about them, and the book is called The Nazi Seance. And that's because until Honison was acquitted in Czechoslovakia in May 1930, he had nothing to do with the Nazis probably knew little about them, if anything, at all. Then he settled in Berlin his favorite city in Europe. This is where he always wanted to live. Berlin, though, 1930, was really not a great place to move to. I mean, I had always thought of Berlin as a city of great intellectual and artistic ferment with artists, writers flocking from all over the continent. That is true. <clears throat> I didn't know, though, that there was another Berlin, a Berlin that was really crumbling and disintegrating, a Berlin with 100,000 whores walking the streets, with 44,000 sick, maimed veterans from the First World War begging in the streets, 35,000 women widowed from the war, young girls who were barely into their teens prostituting themselves after school with their parents' permission because it's the only way they could get by. Billy Wilder never made movies about that. This was a city where the economy was so bad that people had no use for their paper currency. They burned it to heat their homes. A city where one egg cost as much as 30 million eggs before the war, which is an awful lot of scrambled eggs, ladies and gentlemen. A city where almost every day one more person used what was left of their savings for a tram ride to the other side of the city where they threw themselves off a bridge. And then it got worse. There were street fights almost every day between Nazis, communists, socialists. 
There were wagons rumbling through the streets, loaded with guns, rubber hoses, daggers, brass knuckles, iron rods, dynamite for blowing up buildings. Berlin was no longer a city. Berlin was a war zone. But Hannesen was determined to stay in Berlin. He was determined to stay in Berlin on his terms. And that's why, welcome Nazis, that's why he became friends with Count Heldorf, who was the head of the stormtroopers in Berlin. Heldorf was always in debt, loved to gamble. <clears throat> Hannesen was always around to bail him out. Heldorf was always around to make sure one of his men would keep Hannesen safe from the street fighting, or that no hecklers would disturb Hannesen when he was performing, because the last thing a mind reader needs is a heckler in the audience. These people need to concentrate. That friendship, Heldorf Hannesen, was Hannesen's undoing. Things got so bad that during the summer of 1932, left-wing newspapers began campaigning against Hannesen. They were convinced that when he fell, the Nazis would fall. Oh, ye deluded left-wingers. To them, Hannesen, with all his mind-reading and all his mumbo-jumbo, was one of the Nazis' weak spots. He represented the superstition and the religion that the left hated. And this relentless campaign drove Hannesen further into the clutches of the Nazis. Now, the front page of every issue of Hannesen's paper had swastikas in the top corners. Almost every issue had pictures of Hitler looking kind and benign and virile. That's our Hitler. During every political campaign in 1932, early 1933, and there were a lot of campaigns and elections over that period, headlines blared, without Hitler, there's no Germany, or Hitler awakens Germany. Around the same time, Berlin is full of gossip about Hannesen providing women and maybe drugs for Count Heldorf. And some people saw Hannesen conferring with Hitler himself in the restaurant of the elegant Kaiserhof Hotel where Hitler had set up his headquarters. And here, most likely, Hannesen assured Hitler that the stars were aligned in his favor, that victory was his. All this was how Hannesen maneuvered so he could stay in Berlin, to, be to have his name in lights almost every single night. But for a clairvoyant, he had a really crummy way of knowing the future. If he had been better at this, he would have known, and I will read from the book now, that the Nazis understood Germans were desperate for a Messiah who would redeem them. Just one month after the Nazis would take power in January 33, Protestant pastor in Berlin rhapsodized that Hitler was a completely pure man. Such a clear, truthful man does not derive from the earth but out of that higher work. Honison was really a clairvoyant. He would have known that every night in a few years, children in Nazi-run orphanages would praise Hitler 
as the source of everything good. Every night these children would pray, Leader, my leader, given to me by God, you have rescued Germany out of deepest misery. To you I owe my daily bread. Leader, my leader, my belief, my light. Leader, my leader, do not abandon me. But Honison, the great clairvoyant, knew none of this. And he certainly didn't know that the Nazis dreamed of planting their own paradise here on earth. Small, gray, dismal, an Eden with watchtowers and barbed wire. Fascist golems along the Danube and the Rhine and the Seine. Hannes and red mines, he told fortunes. This was a clever scheme for rough times. But when men are playing God, the stakes are high, and the game extends beyond the reach of mere mortals. Hannesen was mortal. The Nazis thought they were eternal. And with a thousand years at their disposal, they pretended they were as close to eternity as mere men could get. So Hannesen Even worse is that in late 1932, the left-wing newspapers revealed that Hannesen was Jewish, that his real name was Steinschneider. Desperate, <clears throat> he visited his ex-wife in northern Italy, Therese, and he asked her to leave her second husband and come to New York with him. And Therese really knew his character. She said, oh, Hannesen, you always want the other man's wife. I cracked up when I heard that from Hannesen's daughter in northern Italy. Hannesen went back to Berlin. He didn't know where else to go. Heldorf and other Nazis tried to overlook the fact that Hannesen was a Jew. They needed his money. He'd been funding the stormtroopers for almost a year now buying supplies for them when they were almost broke, filling up a whole warehouse with boots for them, loaning them his cars. And of course, Hannesen was always bailing out Count Heldorf, who was constantly broke. So Hannesen finally overplayed his hand on February 26, 1933. That was the night he opened what he called the Palace of the Occult. It was a lavish new venue for seances and private consultations. Around midnight, everybody gathered around Heldorf. He assured the crowd that a rather elegant looking woman who was with them was the real Princess Anastasia. Honison was good at this stuff. Uh, this woman, by the way, eventually settled in Charlottesville, Virginia, and when she died, DNA tests were done. She had no connection to the royal family back in Russia, but Honison told people in February 33 she was the real item. He also hypnotized an actress who was there that night. So she would speak about a fire in a large building with great statues that would consume Berlin, change the world, change history. The next night, the Reichstag building, the parliament building in Berlin, was set on fire. 
The Nazis blamed it on the communists. The next day, civil liberties were suspended in Germany. They weren't even restored until 1945. This was the beginning of the Nazi terror. It was also the beginning of the end of Erich Jan Hannesen. He probably learned about the fire that the Nazis would set from Count Heldorf. The Nazis were furious that Heldorf or Hannesen had blabbed about even a fraction of their plans. They had no more use for this man. A month later, March 24th, 1933, stormtroopers came to Hannesen's apartment. They demanded the IOUs that he was keeping, not only from Heldorf, from a number of other high-level Nazis. This man was terrified. He handed over the IOUs. Stormtroopers threw him into their car. They shot him three times in the head. They dumped his body in the woods an hour south of Berlin. Ten days later, his body was found badly disfigured by wild animals. Now, every book is an adventure for the writer, hopefully for the reader. And this book was a bigger adventure than usual. For me, it was a confrontation with self, with history, with a place I always wanted to stay away from. I never wanted to be in the land of the Holocaust. I never wanted to step foot on the terrain where people plotted to exterminate millions of others. I never wanted to be on the same soil that supported Hitler and Goebbels and Gehring and all the other crazed architects of a new world. But doing all that over three trips, maybe seven or eight weeks, completely changed and altered and eviscerated my fear of Germans in Germany. And it gave me a great appreciation for the reconstruction that has gone on physically and psychologically in that country since 1945. It's hard to walk the streets of Berlin and not be reminded about the Holocaust, not be reminded about the Nazis. They have done a far better job of bringing their history to the attention of everyone there than I think we have done with our own history here. Holocaust is everywhere. And tears and sorrow were everywhere also, for me at least. Uh, I got there my first trip uh, about two and a half years ago, uh, late on a Thursday. That Friday, I spent most of the day talking with my translator and researcher. And about three that afternoon, I said, look, Erica, I hear there's a whole big city out there. I really want to get out for a while. So I left her apartment. <clears throat> Outside the building, there was a big steep hill. I walked to the top. There was a very large, very old church. I love old and large churches. I walked up the cobble uh, pavement to the church doorway. There was a big bulletin board outside. Lots of notices. Didn't understand a word. I don't know a syllable in German, but I finally looked at the building itself, and there was a very, very large plaque, and all I could make out were two words, Dietrich Bonhoeffer. And those of you who would know Protestant history, World War II history, know that Dietrich Bonhoeffer was a very prominent minister. This was his church throughout the war from the pulpit in that church, 
he spoke Sunday after Sunday against the Nazis. And finally, mid-1944, the Nazis arrested him, and he was killed in Buchenwald, 1945, just a few days before it was liberated. About five days after that, a wonderful PhD student took me to the Papastrasi prison. He and his friends, other doctoral students, had been searching for quite a while for this rather obscure SS prison. And this is where Hanneson indeed was killed. We're standing outside. He tells me about some of the other prisoners whom he and his friends had gotten some information about. He finally gets to prisoner number 45. He tells me that this man was a socialist journalist. And his name was Leo Krill. And, and I say, Matthias, please just stop for one moment. I asked him if he knew what the English phrase made a name means. He didn't. I had to explain it to him. I said, Matthias, you just told me that Leo Crow was killed in that building. Well, my mother's maiden name was Krill. So being there was very difficult sometimes. And other times, it was a total blast. Yeah. First full afternoon, I did find Dietrich Bonhoeffer's church. And that evening, fully at my instigation, I will bear complete responsibility for this. Uh, Erica, my translator, and I went to the Admiral Palast Theater to see the producers. Fully in German, I did not understand a word. I had to whisper to Eric occasionally, what the heck they sang up there? But I did recognize springtime for Hitler. What was um, amusing in a very um, perverse manner, I suppose, was that Eric and I were sitting on the first tier of the balcony, and just over this shoulder, this shoulder that you had the chutzpah to tap on just a little while ago, Julia, just over this shoulder, was the box where Hitler himself would sit when he came to this theater, just for a little bit of relaxation during the war. I mean, it's hard to be a Fuhrer. You need a few laughs. You need to get out once in a while. So there were people on the stage ridiculing Hitler, and there was the ghost of Hitler right behind me. Um, <clears throat> so there, there were many, many side benefits of, of working on this book. But more directly related to the book was that it was fascinating and indeed frightening to envision Hitler as a sorcerer. But that's what I concluded. In the book, I write that the most whirling of dervishes, Hitler screamed and yelled at rallies. His eyes glazed while he pounded away with demonic incantations, certain that he knew the future and that only he could lead the German people into it. Glorious, noble, triumphant. Germany was ripe for this sort of magical thinking. No one was more magical than Hitler, though an ambitious, ridiculously naive Jew who proffered his own magic to the masses would attempt to sway both them and the Fuhrer, believing that if Hitler was the new god, then the magical Jew would be Hitler's favored prophet. It was fascinating and alarming to learn that Hanneson was far from the only Jew who was pro-Nazi or who believed that some good could come 
from Hitler. There was something called the League of German Nationalist Jews. They were middle class doctors, lawyers, bankers. They embraced Hitler. They thought that he was a misunderstood idealist who had outgrown his anti-Semitism. Oh, ye silly League of German Nationalist Jews. They weren't the only people who Hitler duped. An American stationed with the US Embassy in Berlin cabled to Washington. There's much reason to believe that Mr. Hitler does not approve of the indiscriminate action that has been taken against the Jews. He's believed to be very moderate in his views in this respect. And in March 1933, a reporter from the New York Times wrote, Hitler will abandon his anti-Semitic stand. So all of this convinced me of Hitler's evil brilliance, also how difficult it is to understand our present, indeed any present. If a brilliant clairvoyant, our friend Mr. Honison, couldn't tell what the Nazis planned to do, who could? It's easy for us to be historically clairvoyant backwards, to know in hindsight what was about to happen. But to claim that the people of the time were Struthian, I love that word, it's an admittedly obscure word that means ostrich-like, which then implies that those people had their head in the sand. I think that's hubris of a really high degree. Most of us are lucky if we get through the day fully aware of what we're doing. Most of us make moral compromises all the time. So living in the shadow of the looming Third Reich, few people knew exactly what to anticipate. Other than that, it probably wouldn't be very good. Few, you can be sure, knew the proper way, the right way, the best way to respond. It was fascinating to learn about some of the Nazis' crazier ideas. I think most of us agree they were pretty darn crazy. <clears throat> but they had really ludicrous ideas about so many other facets of of, um, of existence, absolutely mind-boggling, like the idea that the Earth is hollow, and we're all living on the inside surface of a huge sphere. This sphere contains the entire universe. The hollow Earth theory turns the universe into an optical illusion. It reduces some heavenly bodies to less than the size of a peanut, so it would appear as it does to the unaided eye. Hallworth theory claims that the moon is 955 meters across. The sun is 2.5 meters. All the stars are 2 millimeters, and poor Pluto is the size of a bacterium. <clears throat> It was fascinating to learn how mind reading is done. There's no such thing, and that's a relief. I don't know about you. Um, there may not be too much going on in my own head, but I still wanted to remain pretty secure. As I say in the book, if there actually was mind reading, nothing would be sacred. Nothing would be private. We would suffer from a perpetual paranoia that our brains are about to be picked. You're safe. In the magic trade, mind reading is known as muscle reading. By instructing a volunteer from the audience, and I'm not going to ask for anybody tonight, to firmly hold his wrist, Honison or any other mind reader 
can pick up subtle muscular signals that the volunteer didn't even know he was transmitting. So essentially, our muscles speak a language that we don't even know we're capable of speaking. Often we know ourselves so poorly that others can figure out our intentions before they reach our own consciousness. What was also fascinating was to meet and interview Honison's 90-year-old daughter in a lovely town in northern Italy. Erica Steinschneider Fuchs, his daughter, was born in 1920. Honison did not see her from 1924, when he divorced Erica's mother, to 1932, when he suddenly showed up, hoping he could convince Therese, his second wife, to run away to America with him. Erica, the daughter at that point, was 12 years old. She had not seen her father for eight years. She told me she leaped into his arms. They were both in tears. That's, that's touching, and maybe it's true. During the seven or eight days he spent with her, he, he bought her a camera, gave her a bike. Um, the daughter, Erica, begged to go back to Berlin with him, live with him. And Therese, the mother, said, no, nothing doing. The best you're going to do, my daughter, is maybe go on a cruise with him on his yacht next summer. For poor Hanneson, there was no next summer. Even though she had not seen her father for about eight years, even though she only spent barely a week with him, in late 32, Erica now is entirely devoted to him. She has turned her room in a nursing home into a shrine to him. There are pictures of him on every single wall. <clears throat> She's also convinced that <clears throat> she convinced him to convert to Christianity not long before he was killed. He had asked her if she was close to Jesus. She said yes. <clears throat> She said that um, she would like him to become a Christian, just like her. She told me that she said at her Catholic boarding school, I found my big love, Jesus. I told my father he should learn to love Jesus, too. And he did go back to Berlin, and he did convert. And I, I say in the book, that was one of his last great tricks of illusions. The Nazis thought they were killing a Jew. They were killing a Protestant. <clears throat> and Erica told me that after death, Jesus would not come between me and my father. I write, why should he? She was just getting to know her father her real father, and surely Jesus was familiar with the complexities of the father-child relationship. Uh, Erica believes she's in communion with her father. About the second day I interviewed her, she told me that previous evening she got a message from her father that he approved of my endeavor writing this book that I had his protection. A couple of hours later, my translator and I got into our rented Fiat. We started driving down the narrow, winding streets of Murano. We're both laughing. Yeah, sure. Yeah. 
she she was talking with her father last night and yes yeah, sure we we have his protection no matter what we do or where we go that was the only time the, the fiat went over the curb on this entire 1500 mile trip so perhaps he is listening to me now and i was not scoffing mr hannes and i assure you so we had his protection she is in touch with him she did persuade her father to convert uh, but i end the book with this paragraph about being in Murano, which was way up high in the Alps. And go there someday, it's a lovely place. Murano may be in the Alps, but summers there can be scorchers. In July, when I visited, it was sizzling with the deep valley where the town lies, holding in the heat, holding in the humidity. Everyone, especially the tourists, was wilting, cursing global warming, wondering why they weren't spending their time along some breezy, cool seashore. Erica seemed fine. She spent most of her life there. She's accustomed to the summers. She has more energy than a person half her age. She carries her 90 years lightly. With fading eyesight, one of her few conceptions to the rigors of age. But even with her sight waning, she has clear visions of the hills and the peaks that surround the town, holding in the sizzling heat and holding her in too, sheltering her from the pain of what happened to her father, this great stranger in my life a long time ago. These peaks are so high that on certain days, lovely days, they get lost in the low, brilliantly white clouds, merging with the sky and everything beyond it to form one vast and endless vista. A spacious terrain of pristine whites and cerulean blues and a golden celestial light. These mountains beckon Erica upward toward the salvation she craves. Then at last, the little girl who begged to live in Berlin with a man she barely knew will reside with him in eternal and glorious splendor, at last in peace and at last together. So from very late night reading in my living room about something involving rope in India to Murano. I had for me an extraordinary adventure and I hope that should you read the Nazi seance, it transports you somewhere, perhaps to the heights of the Alps. Thank you very much.